This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. The Electoral College is as old as the United States and many people have strong views on whether it should stay or go. Let's talk to a professor of political science who is one of those and hear his views. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. Here's what we've got coming up for you in this podcast. Uh, I know that New Hampshire specifically has a law that states that yeah, they say they we're, we're, we're just be... a couple of weeks before whoever's earliest. Exactly. So by definition, they're earliest. It would be interesting if two laws, two states, passed a law like that. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun, wouldn't it? That's coming up in a few minutes. But first, I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon. I appreciate everyone who contributes. Patreon is a website that allows people to donate a buck or two per podcast or per month. And that helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. If you think that you could do the same as them, there are details on the website and at the end of this show. We've been hearing a lot about Ukraine in the past week, and I can promise you, you'll be hearing a lot more about it in the coming weeks and months and maybe even years. I'm not going to try to keep you up to date with what's going on in the White House. That's not really the job of a podcast, certainly not this podcast. But since we're going to be hearing a lot about Ukraine, it's worth knowing something about that country. Ukraine is big, about 40 million people and about the size of Texas. It was the second largest republic of the USSR. Of course, it's vastly smaller than the largest, Russia. And they're poor. They're not quite third world poor, but they are poor. The GDP per capita is about $3,200 a year, but that's the average. A few billionaires hog most of it. I've seen fleets of Porsches and Maseratis run red lights and speed through the center of Kiev. The typical Ukrainian is much poorer than that $3,200 per person a year figure. In the Soviet era, Ukraine suffered unspeakably. It took the brunt of the Nazi invasion and the Holocaust, although some Ukrainians collaborated because they saw the Nazis as opposition to the Soviets. A decade earlier, the Soviets sat Stalin, specifically, had caused the Holmodor, a genocide the Ukrainians view on a par with the Holocaust. And not without reason, because a roughly equal number of people died when almost all the harvest was confiscated, leaving the population to starve. Treatment was somewhat more humane since the 1950s, although there were extensive Soviet efforts to replace the Ukrainian language with Russian. One other thing that happened from the 1920s onwards was that the borders were changed pretty frequently so that by the time the Soviet Union collapsed in 1990, Ukraine included significant areas previously in Russia. 
In the Soviet times, that hardly mattered because all control was from Moscow anyway. In some ways, if you were an ethnic Russian who ended up living in an independent Ukraine, it didn't really matter. Being poor in Ukraine is like being poor in Russia or being poor anywhere. Many, maybe even most, ethnic Ukrainians spoke Russian as their first language anyway, and nobody cared or even really knew who was who. In fact, many Russians didn't even regard Ukraine as being a different country, not least because the first capital of Russia was Kiev before Moscow was even built, although independent Ukraine did try to assert itself somewhat, particularly by promoting the Ukrainian language and seeking closer ties with the EU. But mostly, it didn't matter because the extravagantly corrupt president, Viktor Yanukovych, was widely seen to be little more than a puppet for Moscow. That all started to change six years ago. Yanukovych refused to sign a free trade deal which had been negotiated with the EU. Ukraine borders four EU countries. The deal would obviously have been good for Ukraine's economy and sharply reduce its reliance on Russia. Thousands of protesters gathered in the bitter winter cold. They were mostly young people who barely remembered the Soviet Union and saw their future as European. They protested in the central square of Kiev, close to a million of them in total. After months of protest, they were attacked by police and snipers. Hundreds were killed, but within a week Yanukovych had fled to Russia and those of his cronies who stayed behind had agreed to free elections, the restoration of the constitution and other reforms. The protesters had won for the time being. Watching closely from across the border was Vladimir Putin. He had seen this up close before, a popular uprising that ousted a seemingly secure puppet government loyal to Moscow. He was a KGB officer in Germany, East Germany, when the Berlin Wall fell, and he's acutely aware of the risk that a popular uprising would pose for him in Russia. A new government in Ukraine, allied to the West, joining NATO and the EU, was just too much. Within months, he ordered his troops, mostly special forces, to take their insignias off their uniforms, paint over the markings on their vehicles, and invade the area of eastern Ukraine and Crimea where there were significant ethnic Russian populations. They hired some local thugs as frontmen to claim that they were rebelling against Ukrainian rule, but Putin himself later admitted that most of the troops and all of the weapons had been sent from Russia on his command, including the anti-aircraft missile system that was used to shoot down Malaysian Airlines Flight 17, murdering all 298 people on board. Crimea, a peninsula in the south of Ukraine, was annexed by Russia after a staged referendum. About a further 5% of Ukraine's territory along the eastern border with Russia is outside the control of the Kiev government. The fighting has more or less stopped, more or less, but this has become a frozen conflict, preventing any movement towards Ukraine joining NATO or the EU. That's probably exactly the way Putin likes it. But if I was Ukrainian, I wouldn't be in any way comfortable with that. 
Putin has dropped hints in public about how easy it would be for him to invade and occupy the whole of Ukraine. So Ukraine desperately, desperately needs international friends, not to mention weapons and other support. Donald Trump is not a popular figure around the world, but if you are the Ukrainian government, you absolutely can't afford to be picky. Luckily for them, Congress had voted $250 million of security aid. That's not only valuable military assistance, it's important as a message too. It tells Putin that the United States does not want him attacking their friends. Conversely, withholding that aid could be taken as a signal that the US approves, or at least doesn't disapprove, of the invasion. However, that aid voted by Congress had to be approved by the President, and at the time of the controversial call between Trump and the Ukrainian President Zelensky, the aid was being blocked by the White House. That's a pretty big incentive to cooperate with any request, however strange, from President Trump. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. I'm a big elections nerd, so I'm really happy to have on the line Professor Stephen Taylor. He's Professor of Political Science, and he's also the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Troy University. He specializes in political parties, elections, institutional design of democracies, that sort of thing. His most recent book is called A Different Democracy, American Government in a 31-Country Perspective. He's a co-author of that, and he writes for OutsideTheBeltway.com. Stephen, on the 3rd of February next year, exactly nine months before the presidential election, what's going to be happening? Oh, the Iowa caucuses will kick off the nomination process for uh, presidential elections. And this is a stellar example of democracy at work. Would you agree? (laughs) Well, um, I think on its face, it seems extremely democratic. Um, In fact, in some ways, I think some people think it uh, exemplifies democracy because people show up and they have to have these meetings. um, And it beats, at least in some people's estimations, you know, the the metaphorical smoke-filled rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I would argue that there's some problems and there's some problems with Iowa and there's some problems with the process. There's, there's a broader discussion we can have about how we in the U.S. pick our presidential candidates or mm-hmm. maybe even other candidates for that matter. But it's it's Iowa though is not especially representative of the U.S. population. So in some ways, it's a very odd place to start this mm-hmm. process. Uh, and also the the what seems to be all participatory, the showing up at schools and gymnasiums and having these conversations is actually somewhat exclusionary because not everyone can afford the time or the effort to come do that activity. So it actually limits who actually participates. Mm-hmm. We should describe it just for some people maybe are not familiar with it. Essentially, instead of having a primary election whereby everybody just goes to the polls and votes, they have meetings in, as you say, school halls and and uh, places like that. Yes. And these are relatively long meetings that people talk at. And how do they vote exactly at the end of them? 
typically they stand in parts of the room and they they count up they count heads. And that's that's not exactly a secret ballot, is it? Well, that's that's quite true. So there's a, that element to it as well. Uh, it's that, and that's down my list of objections, but it, it's on the list, I suppose. It also rewards the, the candidates who are able to engage in a, in sending out for lack of a better word, agents to help organize, to sort of advocate on, on behalf of the candidates because there is an opportunity for for individuals to speak on behalf of particular candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if they're good at it, they can – and then there's some – you have to hit a certain threshold, and off the top of my head, I can't remember what it is, but it dictates whether they re-vote so that they may be – if you're down the list, you're reallocating who – where you go stand <laughs> and then get counted for the uh, – for the, delegate, for the allocation of delegates later. And one of when I was researching this, I couldn't find the statistic, and maybe you know it, roughly what percentage of the population of Iowa actually takes part in this? Oh, goodness. You know, I, I should know that answer. It, it's, it's quite small. Um, it, it's probably in the teens, but I can't remember off the top of my head. I, I would have thought it might even be less than that, but it's, it it's, may, it's it may certainly be. It, nothing like a majority of people and certainly oh, no. vastly lower than the turnout that you'd expect even in a primary election. Yeah, I mean, I guess really your question was percentage of the population of Iowa. So if you're talking yes, about the population yes, yes. of the state, then yes, it would be quite a bit smaller. But even of, even of the uh, the eligible voters, it would be extremely small. Okay. And I tried to challenge people on this. I think we have a slight problem here because I agree with you very much. I think this is a travesty <laughs> of democracy. But I'm going yes. to try and test the ideas in any case. And the first one there really has to be – why does Iowa get to go first? And doesn't that give it a really disproportionate influence in the primary elections? Yes. Uh, these days it goes first because it, the, the, the law locally dictates it. it, it it's some, in many ways, happenstance, right? So over time it's evolved that Iowa goes first. I mean, maybe I should even step back and point out the following. Mm-hmm. Um, the the way we nominate candidates in the United States for president, which is a series of either caucuses or primaries at the state level, starting with Iowa, mm-hmm. uh, really is only – while primaries have existed prior to 1972, really it's only since 72 that they bind, right, this, the delegate selection because then the delegates get selected and they show up and they vote in the summer to formally nominate the candidate, although they don't really have any power beyond the fact that they're basically messengers as selected by these processes. Mm-hmm. In Iowa – Iowa became prominent after really when Jimmy Carter was nominated and he kind of came out of nowhere. And, and since he went on to win the nomination, they, the sort of mythology of Iowa kind of grows out of that particular election in 1976. Um, but in many ways, it's a happenstance that it's become this focus. Uh, it's certainly not anyone – no one designed it this way. Uh, it would be a peculiar place to design the starting point of this process, to be honest. Iowa has about 3 million people, so it's far less than 1% of the population of the United States. And that in itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. New Hampshire, I think, is probably considerably smaller, and it's very influential as well. But when you look at things like the voting power rankings, it is Mm -hmm. kind of obvious that a couple of very small, very rural, very white, and very unrepresentative states have a hugely disproportionate influence. The corollary of that is that not so white and much bigger and much more urban people who live in those places 
have much less power, proportionally speaking. Sure, and and this, and in some ways, that hits on a, a broader problem with U.S. democracy in general. That we've, because of federalism and because of basically some various choices we made over time. Again, some not necessarily on purpose. We don't think about the way in which actual populations matter. We end up focusing on places, right? Mm-hmm. So, in the case of Iowa, it has become this this. Strange, I mean, in my opinion, uh, but I think analytically strange also, as you point out. It's it's an outlier in so many ways, right? In terms of size, as you pointed out, racial composition, uh, the kinds of industry that they're in, the, all these sort of things that that would influence national policy. But nonetheless, it becomes this focal point every four years, where candidates, in some cases, practically will move to the state and start, you know. Uh, participating in these various events, some of which you know you, you couldn't make up, you know, like butter cows and and, um, and various things at, at state fairs, and then this whole thing about retail politics and going to diners, and it's sort of a strangely peculiar American thing, I suppose. But it really, if the goal of the process is to uh, select an appropriate candidate to run for president to represent a political party, it's a very strange way to start, and and again, the process itself has has flaws too. Sure. And just constitutionally, who has the power, if they wanted to do so, to change it? Because I noticed that there are some differences in the way that the Democratic and Republican primaries are run. Is it entirely within the gift of the parties? Well, what what it boils down to is that uh, the parties function uh, within the confines of whatever the appropriate state law is as it pertains to their, their activities. So so state law will provide some parameters and then the parties then within those parameters set the rules. So um, as one one political scientist a long time ago likened them almost like public utilities to a degree that the parties sort of mitigate this function, uh, but the state also helps run it. Um, but it's, so it's not a constitutional issue at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, you know, we're seeing um, – the interesting move by the Republican Party in some early states in, in the state level canceling their primaries mm-hmm. um, uh, in a way to protect uh, the incumbent uh, President Trump in his nomination bid, renomination bid. Mm-hmm. So we can, you, and, but as you point out correctly, yes, the way the way the delegates are, the choice of whether caucus or primary, um, how the delegates themselves are allocated, all of these issues. Uh, are state by state and sometimes party by party within the given state. Do you think that essentially what's happening here is that Iowa doesn't really get an awful lot of attention, same pretty much for New Hampshire. Mm. Is it likely to be that just they said, you know, however this happened, yeah, sure, it was an accident, but this is our place in the sun once every four years and damned if we're going to lose it. I, I think that's accurate. It, it, it is an interesting illustration of path dependency, I suppose, that once you get on this pathway, it's hard to get off of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that New Hampshire specifically has a law that states that – Yeah, they say they we're, we're just be... a couple of weeks before whoever's earliest. Exactly. So by definition, they're earliest. By definition. It, 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 would be inter- it, it would be interesting if two laws, two states passed a law like that. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun, wouldn't it? So yeah, I think it's exactly as you describe. It's not – as I think I said a moment ago, this is not a system you would design, mm-hmm. and this is not where you would start. Um, it, it has been romanticized, uh, although I think we go through the, this critique every four years now that a lot of folks that study this stuff and pay attention to it really raise the question, why do we do it this way? I think the blog post that I caught your producer's attention about this was mm-hmm. just me sort of, in that case, not being very analytical and just sort of agreeing that it was time that this be – taken down. I mean, broadly speaking, I have 
I have concerns about really the the irony is that our entire process is to nominate candidates is is discussed as though it's democratic um, because people get to participate in it. But I'm not entirely convinced anymore that even the primaries beyond Iowa are a problem because it does end up focusing on a narrow slice of the population, and the parties themselves don't get to define what they stand for. Um, Rather, the candidate who wins the most delegates gets to define what the party stands for, which may be fine, but it does create certain uh, downfalls for democracy in the sense that that, that citizens aren't really able to choose the party that represents – the party can't package a set of policy proposals and say, here, this is what we stand for. Mm -hmm. They have a sort of vague definition, but then the candidate in in our system really defines the party, right? And we're seeing it with President Trump right now. I mean the Republican Party that was the party of free trade is now the party of trade wars. And it's not because the party changed as much as the head of the party changed. One one thing then, and to try and put at least a little bit of pushback on this, the United States is a huge country. Yes. And in the event, and the one reform that is suggested is to have a nationwide primary election for each party whereby every state would vote on the same day and that doesn't, that gives no state any advantage over any other. Surely then that would turn politics into completely an air war. There would be no retail politics. There right. would be zero incentive for any candidates to actually walk the streets and get out and meet real people, that could have a negative effect, couldn't it? Well, I think part of that question is what is the exact efficacy of retail politics um, or you know, what does it really add value to the process? I, I think that you're correct. If certainly if we went to a national primary, uh, we would have – it would be fundamentally um, – Television and 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 rallies and such events in rather large locations where they can draw large crowds. Well, if um, it, if it was national, it would be hard even to justify you know actual physical events. Oh, I, I, what I think would happen, I I think what would happen is that you would find you would find some physical events, but in large population centers. And of course, critics of any kind of national vote think that that means that. Therefore, candidates won't pay attention to certain localities. I guess the, the real question to me is, from a democratic theory point of view, is should a system create sort of biases toward particular locations that, that don't warrant them or should the system uh, create incentives for candidates to appeal to the largest possible number of voters? Mm-hmm. Now, I, I believe they should appeal to the largest number of voters. I think you know the Iowa thing for ex- specifically – is a good example of how, yes, Iowa as a rural state gets more attention because of the primary in particular, the caucus in particular. Mm-hmm. So we, we get over the years uh, enhanced focus on candidates on things like uh, soybeans uh, and ethanol and, 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 and corn-based policy, especially ethanol, You know whether mm-hmm. we should have uh, taxes at a certain level or, or whatever the case may be, and you get candidates focus very heavily on that. I think there was a West Wing episode about that. Yes, there was. Um, but it's disproportional, right? It, it really isn't that I'm, – I'm not saying it's not a real issue, but well, – Well, but uh, maybe, it, maybe, we could express the, maybe we could express it like this. Why should three million Iowans get all that attention yes. when three million people living in a county in California 
or perhaps even Texas or New York get yes. almost no attention at all because everybody knows where that state is going to fall. Correct. And, and well, and that's true about the electoral college in particular, but even for the primaries, what happens is when you're late in the process, you don't matter. Then it becomes one of, of timing. Mm-hmm. Now, they've moved several states. It'll be very interesting to see with California is earlier in the calendar than it has been in the past, uh, You know whether it really does matter more than it has in, in some elections. Um, but, but yeah, then it becomes less of either, either it's about just in terms of nominations, it becomes about timing and then, and Mm -hmm. media attention. And and Mm -hmm. because people get, I mean, people are not going to pay attention. The the, the public, they'll get focused on Iowa, New Hampshire because they're, they're early and they're, they get just a remarkable amount of media attention. They become sort of this reality show game about the candidates. And then it starts to peter off, right? We don't go to then to the Nevada and spend, spend the same amount of time with the Nevada caucuses, for example, mm-hmm. uh, or even South Carolina's primary is usually the first Southern primary. So we get some attention, but not like New Hampshire. And then you, as you go down the list, it just, uh, the coverage becomes different and it changes the entire way the candidates interact. Um, to get back to your point about retail politics, I mean, part of the, part of the, I think a legitimate question is, um, Sure, it's kind of quaint and interesting that you know Joe Biden goes and talks to people at a diner, but does that really prepare him to be president of the United States? Is there better ways to to be preparing for that job? I, I, I understand an argument that contact with normal people is a good thing, but again, a superficial contact in, the, in those ways, I'm not sure really makes that much difference. I know that there's a topic we've covered on this podcast before, which is called ranked choice voting, which right. has been instituted in Maine. And I know that you're well up on that. That essentially means instead of punching a hole or making a mark for one individual candidate, what you do is you write one beside your favorite candidate and two beside your second favorite candidate and so on down the line. And you are required to get 50% plus one vote in order to win. Mm -hmm. And if no candidate gets that, you go to the least popular candidate, eliminate them from the process and redistribute their votes to uh, based on who the voter gave their number two to. And what that does is it makes smaller candidates, down the line candidates, more important, not because they might win, but because their supporters now have a more relevant vote. Do you think that has a place in the presidential elections or in any other elections in the U.S.? Well, I mean, if it were up to me and I were waving magic wands, I I would – we talk about the actual election of the president. I Mm -hmm. would do away with the Electoral College. And yes, I I think ranked choice voting uh, would be uh, an an excellent alternative. I think that the president should have to get national support uh, that is in fact absolute majority support uh, and that would be accomplished either by a runoff. But ranked choice voting makes more sense in the sense that you don't have two different elections and technically two different electorates. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no, I, I think that's a, a, an excellent idea. Um, I, I would be amenable if we were going to keep a system of uh, of nomination primaries. I, I would prefer you know ranked choice voting um, implemented and and and, and maybe even a national primary, which would be a very very different creature than we currently have. I'll be honest, I, I, as much as I. Uh, as much as it sounds undemocratic, I, I would just assume that the, par- the parties have internal processes to nominate their their candidates, because I think what it does is create an actual brand that that, that voters can attach themselves to, and that brand is not just a label, but that really is about the policies. And if someone cannot adhere to that party, they would have to form their own party. I think I, I really I think part of why we have in the United States such rigid two party systems 
is because of the way we nominate candidates, whether it's for Congress or for governor or for, for president, because there's no incentive to form a third party. You can, the the, the system makes that makes the politics. Yes. So and then, but then what happens is the parties can they they get shaped by who wins the primaries, not the other way around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the parties can they don't necessarily always consistently represent what they claim to represent, which then creates I think confusion and representation. Of course, we have representation issues in the U.S. at a variety of levels, um, but. Uh, but this nomination stuff, I think, is very, very important because it does dictate who the candidates can be and therefore who the officeholders will be, right? Uh, the U.S. is unusual in that, A, it's a democracy, and B, it has an executive president. Usually countries that have executive presidents have very poor quality or no quality at all of democracy. And the only other example of that that I can think of is France. And France manages to have presidential elections with six or seven candidates, often with three or four of them being viable candidates, people who could actually Mm -hmm. win. Do you think an election like that, do Americans have have the attention span for that? Could it work? Oh, I mean, it could work. It would would take adaptation. We're not used to, we we are, uh, we are in some ways, maybe like a lot of people, we're a small C conservative. We don't like change. Mm -hmm. Um, And we also like to think that whatever is in place was Especially when it comes to constitutional functions, perfectly designed, you know, 220 plus years ago, um, and so the Electoral College is, is is revered for being a design of the founding fathers. Um, mm-hmm. Although, as I like to point out to people, it doesn't work the way they thought it would. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, design's not a very good argument, in my opinion. But um, yeah, I think it could work. I, I think that yeah, France is a good example insofar as. Um, you know, they have a two round system. Um, there is no primary process to nominate candidates. So the parties have to name their candidates. There's a competition, as you point out, when there's, when you have more than one vote, whether it's a ranked choice situation or a two round situation, in the first iteration of that voting, citizens can more, uh, they can vote their more, um, true preferences, right? And mm-hmm. then, then work on the second place part, uh, and then narrow down support to, to, a, to an outcome. I mean, you know, you look at again. Um, you look at the U.S. system in 2016. I mean, clearly in some states, um, well, one neither candidate, neither Trump nor nor Clinton won a, an absolute majority of vote. Uh, Clinton won the plurality of the national vote. Mm-hmm. So we really don't have a. We didn't have a system that that dictates who really gets majority support. And there were several states, and I looked it up the other day, let's say for the sake of argument, somewhere around 10, but I, I could be mis- misremembering, mm-hmm. where the where the, the uh, nobody won a majority of the vote. They won a plurality of the vote. So yeah, something that narrows down and, and clearly demonstrates what what the citizens, what the majority of citizens want um, is, I think, preferable to a system in which uh, either plurality or a minority gets to make the decision. Stephen Taylor, Professor of Political Science, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Troy University, also writer for OutsideTheBeltway.com. Thank you very much for talking to me. It's been my pleasure. Never miss a show. You can subscribe to the podcast for free using iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, or any other podcast software or app. See ChallengingOpinions.com backslash subscribe for details. Go to the website for sources and links to what we were talking about. And while you're there, please like the show on Facebook, follow at ChallengingO on Twitter, and follow Stephen Taylor at DRSLTaylor. And get in touch with me if you have a guest or a topic that you can suggest for a future show. 
And thanks to everyone who signed up as a patron on Patreon so far. I really appreciate them. It lets me devote more time to research and finding interesting guests. And if you can do the same as them and donate a book or two per podcast or per month, go to patreon.com slash challenging opinions, or you'll find the link on the website. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. It's all at www.challengingopinions.com. Coming up next Monday, that's October 7th, I'll be talking to the attorney Wen Fa of the Pacific Legal Foundation about some of the cases he's fighting. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.